Amen. Thank you all so much for praying for them and thinking of them. Um, if you would, grab your Bibles. If you have them, turn to Exodus chapter 32. If you're new, want to say welcome, uh, catch you up a little bit. We have been journeying through the book of Exodus for many, many, many months now, and we are getting now out of the place uh, that a lot of places just skip over. That's like how long the drapes are and what color they are. Uh, and as God is giving Moses instructions up on the mountain, we're getting to the part now that movies are made of right? And so we're getting to some really exciting things here. So the last three months, uh, we've sort of whittled all of you down. You're like, are you still honestly talking about uh, gold uh, cubits and uh, how tall curtains are? Yes, it's the inspired word of God. It's all very important. But God has been speaking to Moses on the mountain, on Mount Sinai. He's been giving him instruction for how to build the tabernacle. And the tabernacle will be the place that God's people will meet with the living God that has led his people out of 400 years of bondage and slavery and saved them, opened up the Red Sea. And he says, I am a God that longs to dwell with my people, so much so that you are, I'm gonna give you specific instructions to build a tabernacle, a tent, if you will. If you remember, these are nomadic people. They would have been used to living in tents. And God says, I'm going to live in a tent among you. You will know me, and I will be there with you, and I will be for you, and I will guide you. And so we have this personal God that has saved his people, has rescued his people, and he's provided a place in which they can meet with the living God. That's what Moses has been receiving, all of the instructions for exactly what this place will look like, how God will be worshiped, how we are to approach him, how we are to bring sacrifices to him when we fall into sin and rebellion, to be brought back into right standing with him. And now we learn what's happening down at the foot of the mountain. As Moses has been receiving the word of the Lord, the tablets on the stone, the 10 words to live by, and all the commandments of the tabernacle, which God longed to dwell with his people. And so I have a lot of Bible to read this morning. I thought, can I just only read a little bit, but it's all so important. And what else are we here for than to hear the reading of God's word? So I'm going to read it all. So it might take me a little while, but I think as we've been walking through Exodus, God is growing our, uh, our, our muscles of hearing the scripture read for long amounts of time. Uh, and really, just for me, <coughs> I believe this is the sermon. I've got some, some things to say about it, but this is the word of God. This is the word of God. So there's nothing more important that I could give to God's people than his word. And then we've got a few things to say about it. So we're going to read all of Exodus 32 in its entirety, and it is a doozy. Here we go, Exodus 32. Remember, Moses is up on the mountain receiving all of these instructions on Sinai. Here we go. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who, will sh who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And so Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. 
And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings and the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, we're back up on the mountain, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I've commanded them and they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and have sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and strength and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring." As the stars of the heaven and all of this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken to bring of the people. And then Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides. On the front and the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, and engraved, engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it does not sound of shouting for victory, or the sound of the cry of the feet, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, and he broke them at the foot of the mountain, and he took the calf that they had made, and he burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of the Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods whom shall go before us. 
And for this, Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't even know what's become of him. So I said to them, let any of you who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to their derision of the enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your swords on your side, each of you. Go to and from the gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, today you have been ordained for service of the Lord, each of you at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day, Moses said to his people, you have sinned a great sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And so Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in this day when I visit, I will visit their sins upon them. And then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made a calf, the one that Aaron made. We could spend 12 weeks, I think, right there. That's a lot. But here's what this story brought to mind. Top of mind, I think uh, we're just coming out of what we know as hurricane season, right? And so always uh, we've somehow been spared, but it seems inevitably that Texas or Louisiana or Florida always has some massive storm barreling down on them. And inevitably there's always a scene on the news and we've been recipients of this on our own news channels. I think we all have our own hurricane prep guides. We all uh, wish we had a generator or we have plans to buy a generator one day for all of these disasters that befall us so often. And so usually what happens is is the governor gets up and starts telling everyone, take shelter, take shelter, or leave now, depending on how close you are to the eye of the storm. You must evacuate. You must leave. You must find safe shelter. And there's always the people, I don't know where they find these people, there's always the people that live like, on a, like right on the beach, basically in a tent, and they're like, it's gonna be fine. I've lived here for 40 years. I'm not moving. I've never moved. I'm not moving now. Like, this is my home, and I'm not going anywhere. And they're pleading with these, these people, you've got to find safe refuge. You've got to find safe refuge. And inevitably, there's a group of people that do not listen. They do not heed the warning. They do not listen to the call to find safe refuge. And we see, as we turn on the news, devastation in the wake of the impending storm that has been warned, that sweeps through and has 
no partiality about where it hits. And it's sad. And human life, a lot of times, is lost. Property is lost. Devastation is in the wake, and it's catastrophic. No one likes to hear warnings about the coming storms. That's true of hurricanes from governors, and that's true of uh, the Old Testament in Israel when God tells them of what will befall them if they do not heed his words, and that is true, brothers and sisters, of you and I today. We do not like to heed the warnings of God because we do not think that they apply to us. We think we know better. We've got a better plan. I've been doing it this way my whole life. Why would I need his way? In fact, um, the Apostle Paul references and refers to this very passage in Exodus 32 when he tells us what we're to make of Exodus 32. It's, it was, this was so helpful to me in preparation of this sermon because there's so much in there. Like, what do, you, what do we do with this? The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, tells us exactly what we are to think of it. It's not going to be on the screen, but I'm going to read it to, to you. So we just read all together the experience of the Israelites at the foot of this mountain. And the Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10 about these events that we just read. These things took place as examples for us that we might not do evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. How do I know he's talking about exactly this? Because he quotes from Exodus 32, right here in our passage, verse 6. 1 Corinthians 10, 6, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. After they have made the golden calf, Paul quotes this and says, they, they sat down and they rose up and they eat and they drink and they rose up to play. They're having this celebration of worship to this false idol, this false god. And Paul says, that happened to them, that this story in Exodus 32 happened to them and is written down and is given to us as God's people as our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. In other words, Paul is telling us what we're supposed to do with Exodus 32. He's saying, this is the governor's warning. Exodus 32 is the governor's warning to you and I, believers, this storm will kill you. This is serious. Do not just brush it off. Take this seriously. This is coming and it's barreling down. Get to safety. You need a safe refuge. That's what he's saying. It's a warning and we need to hear it. And the Apostle Paul says this is an example for us. And this particular storm that he is warning us about, this particular storm that is barreling down on you and I that Paul says that we need to know about and we need to take refuge from is idolatry. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Um, Zach was talking about it earlier. We don't, we're just like the people that receive the governor's call. We just don't like hearing about it. But this is exactly what we need to hear, the scriptures tell us. These people, yes, they make a golden calf. They, <clears throat> excuse me, they collect all the rings of gold. 
from sons and daughters and wives, and Aaron fashions this thing. You and I, I know, are not in the business of manufacturing uh, little trinkets that we bow down to. I know that's not what we do. We don't make icons and worship them and hang them up. Um, maybe, well, not all of us. Some of us, maybe. I know I've heard stranger things and bow down to them, right? That's not, we're not really in the habit of doing that. Um, but don't think that doesn't mean that you and I don't have an idolatry problem. We do. Um, Calvin, John Calvin famously said it this way, and I think he's right. The human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. Meaning this, long before we even make something with our hands to bow down and worship in a religious ceremony, our hearts and our minds are busy making idols that we serve and we worship and our hearts fester for them and long for them in the recesses of our hearts and of our lives. Paul says it this way, for example, in Colossians 3.15, covetedness is idolatry. So when you long to have that which your neighbor has, I really wish I had that. I struggle with this, that one, like almost every day living in the culture that we live in because it's like we all get the thing right away around here. And it's like, oh my goodness, they've already got the new fill in the blank. And you just, if we're not careful, our hearts just just bend toward wanting that thing. And if we let that fester and we let that grow, we start to despise the person that has it because we don't. Paul says that's idolatry. Philippians 3.19, he talks about a people whose God is their belly. I just want to be satisfied. I'm going to fill up my lives with pleasure, with food, with good drink, and I'm just going to spend my life chasing that down. At the end of that pursuit is idolatry and emptiness, and it won't do what you think it's going to do. We, church, have an idolatry problem. Our hearts are bent toward it. We're not so silly now that we would make little images to bow down, but we've gotten craftier about it. The list is long. Um, Pleasure, money, children, work, sports, school, a thousand more I could list that can turn into even good things, into idolatrous things that we say, as long, so long as I have this, so long as I get this, so long as this is there, I have significance and value. And now suddenly, as we begin to think about our lives in those terms, the golden calf doesn't seem so silly anymore. Uh, The ancient peoples had all of the same idols we have. They had gods for pleasure. They had gods for money. They had gods for work. They had gods for the harvest. They had gods for war. They had gods for power. They had all the lists of gods that would bow down to that would give them what their heart desired the most. Just like we do. We fashion them in different ways in our hearts and minds though, don't we? And so whether you consider yourself religious or not, whether maybe this is like your first Sunday, you're like, what is this guy talking about? Like, I've never, I haven't been in church in 15 years, and are we really doing a golden calf thing? That seems a bit antiquated. This is, we're, we're all in the same boat. 
This is an old story that is still us today. We run after things that are not God. And so we need church, like the Apostle Paul tells us, the warning of Exodus 32 because it shows us what idolatry is like. It shows us what idolatry results in. And it tells us at the end of the story where our only hope and safe refuge is for an idolatrous people. Right? So that's, that's the flow. That's where we're headed. It tells us about the nature of idolatry, the character of idolatry, the consequences of idolatry, and our only hope for idolaters. So if you're a note taker and you're an outline person, that's where we're headed. So let's think about the nature and character of idolatry as we looked at in Exodus 32, verses 1 through 6. Right away, you look at the surface, the passage, the absurdity of idolatry. The absurdity. Look at what they say to Aaron. Up, make us gods that shall go before us. Isn't that absurd? With straight faces. These people are saying out of their mouths, they're asking Aaron to make them gods. This is, mind you, this is the first time that Aaron has been put in charge. Moses is up on the mountain, and he just caves to the people's requests. He caves to the cultural winds that say, we need this and we need someone to do it for us and we need someone to lead the charge. Aaron, you do it. He's like, okay, yeah, I guess so. There's a lot of people and this is what they all want. I better do it. He caves, but it's absurd because idolatry is one of the great themes of the whole Bible and the Bible teaches us that it's absolutely absurd to worship the creature and not the creator. The Bible is filled with passages that teach on the absurdity of the fact that we are prone to worship the creation rather than the creator. And to believe that lie and to run headlong for it. Psalm 115, four through eight, makes a mockery of this whole idea. This, the, it, it highlights the absurdity of idolatry and, and, and talks about those who place their trust in idols and it shows them what this idol will do to us. Listen to Psalm 115, four through eight. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throats. And those who make them, catch this, become like them. And so do all who put their trust in them. Those who make them become like them. And so do all who put their trust in them. That list was of someone that can say, speak, do, and know nothing. They have mouths but cannot speak. They have feet but cannot walk. Those who put their trust in the idols that we make in our hearts and minds become like them. So whether you've made an idol with your hands or you forged it and crafted it carefully over many years in your heart, whether it be pleasure, whether it be enough in the account, whether it be the right home, whether it be the right family image, whether it be the right whatever it is, 
whatever your idol might be, it can never give you what your heart is looking for. The scriptures tell us. Instead, it leaves you as you chase it and as you continue to fashion it and as you continue to make it just right so that once you get it, then everything will be good. It actually makes you empty with no words and no feet and no action and it produces nothing in the end. You become just like the thing you're crafting and in the end, it's lifeless, the scriptures tell us. What a foolish thing idolatry is. But boy, it's alluring, isn't it? And then notice also in our passage, the, uh, I'm calling it the infection of idolatry. The infection of idolatry. Uh, we are all very familiar uh, with infection these days, right? We seem to have a, had a crash course the last couple years and we're constantly testing for viral infection and do I have it, do I not have it? If I'm around that person, how long do I not need to be around them to not be around them so that they don't get it, so the teacher, right? We've all been exhausted by this idea of infection and viruses and the spread of them and how we uh, just can't escape it seemingly. And idolatry is a lot like that. It's an infection. And as it, as it grows and as it takes root, it begins to spill over into other people's hearts, into other people's lives, into other people's thoughts, into other people's actions. It's like an infection. It's like a virus. And the people wanted an idol from Aaron, and Aaron caves to the request, and he enables and he facilitates their sin. He makes a golden calf from their jewelry. And then they say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. And then Aaron, immediately after this, you can see it growing. You can see it getting worse. You're like, if that wasn't bad enough, they, like they collected the gold, they made the thing, they all verbalized what it was, and then the people are like, these are my gods. It gets worse. And Aaron's like, oh, I know what I can do to make this even better. He builds an altar builds an altar to this thing, and they bring offerings to this God that they think will help them in their time of need. And then he calls a festival so that they can worship this thing properly. And verse six tells us about this vortex, this storm of sin that begins to sweep seemingly the entire camp of Israel so that by verse six, everyone is eating and drinking and rising up to play. It's a grand time down at the bottom at the foot of the mountain. We've got the golden calf. We've got food and drink flowing. We have the gods now that have brought us out of Egypt. And we're just going to have a grand old time all together. So this is reminiscent. Many scholars believe that they've tipped into what would be commonplace in uh, paganism worship. So you've got these drunken parties that are essentially happening around this golden calf. Debauchery, as the Bible would call it in other places. I'll save some of my other language uh, for another day, knowing the audience. So this is happening right here. And they've collapsed into this. And the children of Israel are seeing this. The people of Israel are seeing this. The leaders are doing this. Aaron's crafting this. Aaron's building. He's, they're all getting swept away by this. And it's informing what they believe and what they think is valuable. So parents, quick analogy here. 
if you make an idol out of a certain lifestyle, out of a certain goal you might have, and you spend, you're spending your life chasing that thing, um, even if it's draped in biblical Christianity, a nice veneer, it begins to wear quickly. And our children and those around us can see really what we're pursuing, really what we're building our lives on, really what we're running after, really what we're saying is most valuable and the best and the most prized thing. So we have to be careful as those that are leading our homes and our churches because this, this trickles in so quickly and we can mask it in, we're God's people. Well, God's still with us. I, they're like, I don't know what happened to the Moses guy up there, but we gotta do something here. Yeah, we still want his help, but we also need this. And let's do this. So make no mistake that those whom we are leading in our lives, if you are leading a family, if you are leading a business, if you are leading whoever you're leading, um, put God central. Don't bow down to these other things because it begins to show quickly as we live. That which most captivates your heart is most likely to capture and captivate the hearts of those around you. That's convicting. That's convicting for me. As a pastor of a church, as a father, as a husband. Um, because it's all over the scriptures that we're so prone to fall into this. Um, and then thirdly, so we had the absurdity of idolatry. It's like, what? Then we had the infection that's just spreading amongst God's people. Um, and then we need to face this, the straight up, downright disobedience of their idolatry. We have to just face that. Now, if you remember, if you've been with us for any short amount of time, well, actually, it was probably a, long, it was a couple months ago. If you go back a few months ago and we walk through the Ten Commandments that God is giving to Moses on the mountain, you remember the first four of the Ten Commandments were to make no other gods, were to have no other gods before the Lord, were to make no graven images and bow down and worship them, were not to take the Lord's name in vain, were not to misuse his name, and were to keep the Lord's day, the Sabbath day, holy and not bow down and worship and celebrate any other gods but the one true God that delivered us out of slavery and saved us. That was back in 24, Exodus 24. Um, he delivered the Ten Commandments. He delivered all of these things from God. And then after that, uh, they make a blood covenant with God, God's people, if you remember. They're like, yes, all that the Lord has commanded, they said, we will do. We are on board. We're all in, Moses. Remember they had the blood, if you were the, this blood covenant. They're like, we're walking in this together. And a blood covenant means if you break that covenant in the Old Testament, the shedding of blood has to be required, which is why they have sacrificial altars because atonement has to be there for the price of sinful people. They made a blood covenant. We will do all that you have commanded. And a few chapters later, here we are watching God's people systematically break each one of them. There's nothing subtle, there's nothing covert, and there's nothing hidden about it. It's just disobedience, straight up. Yeah, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I'm 
doing this. And we can talk about how, you know, we're hardwired for sin. We've got baggage we've seen from our parents. I can say that my parents aren't here this weekend. So all the baggage my parents gave me and all the miserable things that they weighed me down with is really why I am the way I am. You know, it's just like I'm born into it. Dad, thanks a lot. He doesn't podcast. He'll never hear this. It's fine. Um, It's part of the issue. Just kidding. Um, Not better. We can blame a lot of things. It's the society, it's the pressure, it's just the culture, it's what everyone else is doing. Sometimes we resort to that one. Well, gosh, everyone else seems to be doing it. It can't be that bad. It's like we result to the four-year-old sort of excuse. But the bottom line is, as we've been walking through this, God says, here's exactly how I want you to worship. I want you to worship only me. I want you to worship me according to my word, on my terms, in this way, so that you can approach me in the way that is acceptable to me, and we say, I got a better idea. I prefer to do it this way, and that's downright disobedience. And in verses seven through 10, you'll look here in the passage, you'll see what God thinks about that and his assessment of it. And the Lord says to Moses, you'd better get yourself back down to camp because uh, you're gonna see once you get down there what these people are up to. They've turned aside and they followed idols, essentially. And what's interesting here, and we could teach a whole sermon on this, but the people, they do this, and they think it's like altogether unnoticed by God. Like, oh, I guess God's sort of up there with Moses, so we can kind of do our thing down here. God sees it all, but they think, oh, if I just sort of am doing this here with all these other people, it's okay. They kind of get a groupthink going thing. And they just run headlong into it. And then verses seven and eight and nine, he tells us, and he uses three terms to characterize the sin of the people that they're walking into. So verse seven, he says, they have corrupted themselves. So this is describing what idolatry does. It says they have corrupted themselves. That's to say that their idolatry, which they told themselves will be full of pleasure and joy and help them, is actually polluting them, corrupting them, perverting them. Secondly, verse eight, it corrupts. Secondly, it says, they have turned aside so quickly out of the way that I've commanded them, the law of God. The life which God called to them is clear. It's straight, and it says they've taken a detour. They've moved away from what I've commanded to them. They've turned away, and how quickly we do the same thing. So sin, idolatry, it corrupts, and it turns us on a different path rather than the path that God has given to us. And then in verse nine, he says, and all of that comes from a hardened heart. He uses this expression, stiff-necked. I have seen the people, behold, it is a stiff-necked people. This idea, the stiff-necked idea comes from, uh, remember, they're an agrarian people, an agrarian society. It comes from a farmer trying to uh, put uh, something on his, uh, the yoke on the ox or the mule as they're farming. And this is a self-willed animal. It will not receive the yoke. It's stiff-necked. It doesn't want to go where I'm telling it it should go. It wants to go its own way. It wants to brussel up against it. It wants to rebel. And we're reminded here as we hear these words, or the words of Jesus, aren't we? When Jesus calls you and I to something, 
He says, his yoke, take his yoke upon us and learn from him because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. God gives grace to the humble, but idolatry festers into pride so quickly. And when you put that all together, it is a really ugly picture, isn't it? That's what idolatry looks like. And it's shocking and it's not flattering. But I wonder if in some recesses in our hearts it's a portrait of some area of our lives. And I think I needed to hear that, that, that reminder, that, that this example for us to not run headlong into those things that I think will just, if only I had whatever it is, then I will get that. Nothing can take the place of the Lord God. And if this is describing you, church, let me remind you that what you really need is the Lord Jesus Christ. Not all those other things. Not all those other things we run headlong for. Um, but quickly, as I finish here, I want to see the consequences of the idolatry. So we just kind of saw the nature of it. We saw what it was all about. We saw what it does and what are the consequences. What happens when you pursue it, verses 15 through 20, Moses makes it back to camp. If you remember when I read it, he's carrying the tablets, which are transcribed on both sides, the commandments that he's received from the Lord. And when he sees what's going on, he takes two symbolic actions here. Um, verses 19 and 20. Verse 19, he smashes the stone tablets at the foot of the mountain as he sees this idolatrous people in this party scene worshiping this absurd God that they've bowed down to, and he smashes the tablets that are written on them, the words of God. And then he takes, in verse 20, the golden calf that they'd fashioned, and he grinds it into dust, and he throws it into a fire, and then he pours water on it, and then in a weird turn of events, he makes everyone drink this concoction. Holy moly. It's like, what? That can't be good, like, to taste or good for you. You know, it's just like, what's happening in there? There's a lot of mineral deposits that are going down. I don't know, maybe that could be a new thing. Um, so you, like, this is, like, intense. Now, understand, this isn't a fit. This isn't a temper tantrum. Moses isn't, he's not just, like, uh, have a bruised ego that they didn't listen to him when he came down. He's trying to get through to the minds of a stiff-necked people what sin has done to the relationship with God. It has shattered their fellowship with God. When they're having these festivals to this false God and they're drinking it deeply, he melts this golden calf and he's saying, this isn't just some external thing, it's going into you and it's poisoning the very being of who you are. It's broken fellowship and the sin is poisoning them. It's not just, a lot of times when we have idolatry in our lives, we're like, it's not, I'm not hurting anyone. I just, I have this little thing and it's, I don't tell anyone about it and I keep it to myself and it's not hurting anyone. Friends, it is. Idolatry is poisonous and it goes in and it comes out and affects you and others and breaks your fellowship with the Lord. It's not superficial, it is a big deal. And Moses wants them to understand that sin is like a poison, their idolatry is like a poison, and it is bitter all the way down. And then we have a confrontation between Moses and Aaron. 
where Aaron tries to make a bunch of excuses, doesn't he? It's like, you know these people. Moses, they asked me, and I just, I, you know, verse 22, you know the people, they're set on evil. He's like, I'm innocent here. What could I do? You know Israel. I mean, really, come on, Moses. Aaron tries to pass the buck, and if what you notice here that's happening, this is the exact same thing that happens in the garden with Adam at the fall. Same, same verbiage. God, it's this woman that you gave me. She made me do it. Aaron, Moses, you know these people. They made me do it. I'm just trying to help them out here. It's not my fault. Passes responsibility for sin. This is what the fall does. This is what sin does. It's happened in the garden. And if you remember from a couple weeks ago, we have a mini creation story in the construction of the tabernacle that ends in God's instructions of saying, and on the final day, on the seventh day, you will rest and you will enjoy me and you will celebrate and feast and enjoy the Sabbath rest. And then just like in the creation story, on the seventh day, God rests. In Genesis, what happens right after God creates, on the seventh day, he rests. We have man in the garden, supposedly enjoying God forever we have the fall. And right here after the creation of how God is going to dwell with his people in tabernacle and how he's going to dwell with them and be with them and guide them and he gives them his word and his law and how he will atone for their sin and it says on the seventh day we'll rest and celebrate with me down on the mountain we have the fall of man all over again. Creation, fall, and what are we all longing for? What are we hoping I eventually get to because this has been a bit of a downer? Redemption. Where is Redemption. Verses 25 through 29, Moses calls for, calls for repentance. He calls them to step away from participating in what they're participating in. And the ones that ironically step up to do it are Aaron's own tribe, the tribe of Levi, who have a lot of implication as the story goes on. He calls them to get swords, to go to and fro, to and fro in camp, executing divine judgment. You read that and you're like, holy moly, did they just, what just happened here? Like, I really didn't want to teach this part because I was talking to my wife. I'm like, this is, I, this, is a, this is crazy when there's, Moses calls and the Levites come, they get swords and they go slay their brothers and sons. And we're like, I'm out. I don't understand. Remember, they made a blood covenant with God. If I break these commandments, God, you've saved me, you've rescued me, you said you wanted to be my God, we will make a blood covenant, we're all in, we wanna live by your rule, your way, and we wanna live for you, always blood covenant. The result of a blood covenant is death when you break it. It is actually divine mercy that God didn't just wipe them out, just like he didn't in the garden. Blood was spilt through the blood of the ram to give them coverings, and again, here in the fall, God gives mercy and provides a pathway for redemption. And here we have the only hope that we have as idolaters. Um, the problem with idolatry isn't simply that it makes matters worse for you as we go about our day. The real problem is in our hearts. Um, and we know that when we bow and worship these things, we have to answer to this holy and just God that demands obedience because of his law and his rule and his way. So the warning is don't play with these things. Take shelter, run. 
like the earlier example of the hurricane. Don't try to just say, I can do this on my own. I'm gonna wait it out. You need to get to safety. You need to run to safety before it's too late. The storm will kill you. And so that's what Moses does here in verse 11 through 13 is he says, who will plead our case and bear our condemnation? And Moses steps into that gap. And he pleads three things if you look at his prayer. First, he says to God, these are your people, God. You chose them. In verse 11, over and over again, he keeps insisting, these are you people, you chose them. Not only are they your chosen people, they're your redeemed people. You brought them out of Egypt. He's reminding even God. He's having a conversation with God. You saved them. You've rescued them. They are your covenant people. You made a promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Israel, your servants. God, keep your promise. Your reputation is at stake. He pleads their case for them. Moses intercedes for his people people. And even more than that, later on in verses 32 and 33, Moses offers himself. He offers himself. That's astonishing. Paul seems to reflect on some of this wonder in Romans 5 when he says, hardly for a good man will someone even dare to die. Maybe for a righteous person would someone dare to die. And here Moses is amongst an idolatrous idolatrous people daring to offer himself. And he says, God, I'll go back up the mountain. I will make intercession for them. God, can I make atonement for them? For these wicked, rebellious Israel, if you will forgive them, Lord, I will stand in their place. And then he sort of breaks off because words fail him. And he says this. But if not, then blot out my name from the book which you have written. Let the judgment fall on me and not on them. If justice must be satisfied, then let me bear the brunt and let your people live. Now Moses was merely a man. And God would not allow Moses to be a substitute for Israel. Even in their idolatry. But church, we have a better intercessor. We have a better mediator. We have a better substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself the righteous one for the unrighteous to bring us to God. He offered himself. And he says over you and I today, an an idolatrous people, Lord, blot me out that they may live. And he stood in our place. The Lord poured out his wrath for an idolatrous people, for you and I, on his son, that he might instead pour out his grace and mercy on you. The Lord, because of Jesus, relented from the disaster that was coming and was gonna take us all. It was not gonna stop We couldn't stop it. We couldn't bear it. We couldn't wait it out. It was coming for us, and it was going to be catastrophic. And in that place, God sends his son. And he took it. He took the full weight of the storm, barreling down on you and I. He knew all that was coming. He says, I'll take it so that they can be in the book of life. (sighs) 
Jesus is our only hope for an idolatrous people. Church, if you are struggling in the recesses of your heart with something, you're longing that you think, if only I could just get whatever it is, Jesus is the only remedy for you. Run to him. Confess it to him. Bring a friend along and say, help me take this to the foot of the cross so that I can put this to death so I don't keep giving my time and my resources and all of my heart to this thing that will always fail me, but I want to, I want to sit at the feet of the one who took it all for me that I can have life and life to the full, life abundantly, the real life that God has for me, not this fake one that can't speak, that doesn't have legs, and that is absurd. We've spent too much of our lives running after the absurd things that are idols and Church, God's word, this warning to us is that we would run to our risen Savior who has given us all that we need for life and godliness. Jesus only, Jesus always, Jesus is enough for us today, even in the places where we feel so unworthy that we've bowed to so many different things. He comes and he forgives and he calls us back to the family of God that we can make the most of that which he's given to us in this life that would ultimately honor and glorify him as we live for the one that stood in our place. Let's pray together, church. Lord, I pray now for my brothers and sisters here as we grapple with these things that are in our hearts that we so easily and quickly run to that we think will satisfy us, God. Help us, Lord, to see how absurd they are. Help us to know from your word, from the example that we have in Exodus 32, that they're a poison to us as we go to them and drink them so deeply that they don't just impact in the recesses, but they impact everyone around us. Help us to put those to death and help us to worship you and you alone and thank you that we can do that because we have a great high priest who came, who saw us in the midst of our idolatry and our sin and our rebellion and offered himself to stand in our place that we could be ushered in as sons and daughters of the most high God and that our worship now can be pleasing to you because of the Lord Jesus Christ who conquered sin and death for us, who is our only hope in our fight against idolatry. So Lord, today expose it in our hearts. May we see it as disobedience. May we not try to pretty it up and may we bring it to the foot of the cross and praise the one who took it. And as a result of that great love which you have bestowed upon us, may we now not to earn your love, but because of your love, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. That such a great love sent his only son to forgive us and to claim us as your own. May we now walk in that light and that truth and the victory that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ, risen and ruling and reigning now at your right hand on our behalf. We praise you and thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Church, let's stand and worship.